Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. Hello, ladies and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star, the namesake, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Lots to talk about today. We're going to start off with Victor's thoughts on some comments by Joe Biden about a movie that he showed at the White House this past week on Emmett Till, the young black teenager who was uh, lynched, murdered in the, um, I think, 1955. But Joe Biden, of course, has taken this uh, tragedy and this movie and exploited it into his usual lunacy to make America more divisive. Anyway, we'll get Victor's thoughts on that, plus the uh, train derailment, troubles with the with flying again, abortion, and the Department of Defense, plenty more. And we'll get to all that right after these important messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We again, we're, we are recording on the 18th of February, and this particular episode will be up on Tuesday, February 21st. The home base for Victor Davis Hanson Show is John Solomon's JustTheNews.com. Check it out there. Of course, you probably have subscribed and you listen to this on whatever platform suits you. So be it. So, Victor, I know you have some uh, thoughts you want to share about Joe Biden. Again, he he uh, had a viewing uh, at the White House earlier this week on a documentary on Emmett Till. And he said some some thoughts the day before about the new governor of, of Maryland. Joe can't help but stir America's racial divisiveness. Victor, what are your thoughts? 
You know, I don't understand Joe Biden because he he calls uh, the so-called white middle class chumps and drags, and then he brags that he's a myth from that. And then he unleashes a whole patois of fake acts, uh, uh, fake, you know, put you all in chains, that kind of stuff. And then he has a whole repertoire of racism. Remember he said Barack Obama was the first clean, articulate presidential black Af African-American candidate. And he called the journalist junkie and he called him, you ain't black. And he said to a very distinguished group of professionals, they're going to put you all back in chains and the donut comment. And he used the term for one of his uh, senior assistants down in Louisiana. He called him boy, still uses the word Negro, et cetera, et cetera. So he's watching this uh, new film about Emmett Till, this horrific murder that took place, as you said, I think it's 55, I guess, in Mississippi. A young African-American teenager was brutally murdered by, uh, you know, by uh, this aggrieved husband who had nothing to be aggrieved about. He his wife accused the teenager of flirting with her or whatever. He beat, beat him to a pulp, killed him, buried him. The body surfaced. They found out. They shipped the body. It was an open casket funeral. It set the country on fire as it should have. And then people got even angrier when a white jury acquitted him. And then he confessed later on, knowing he couldn't be put in, under double jeopardy. And he got some money for an interview saying that he did it accidentally. But that was obviously not true. Uh, so he f sees this thing and he says, you know, Lynch for simply being black. But I don't think that Emmett Till, first of all, was lynched. Was he, Jack? I think he was beaten up. But uh, I'm not. I'm not going to quote right. the, the exact circumstance. And then he said he was lynched for simply being black. Nothing more. Okay, no problem with that. That's true. With white crowds, white families gathered to celebrate the spectacle, taking pictures of the bodies and mailing them as postcards. I'm not sure that that is applicable to this particular case. Uh, and I'm not it trying to not. split. I'm trying. I'm trying to split hairs, but in a very tense racially divided America to say that all these white people were taking pictures. I think that's about an earlier age in the from 1870 to 1920s, when 3,500 African-Americans aggregate were lynched. It was terrible. But then this is what but I'm not I'm not interested in splitting hairs about that. He says, hard to believe that that was done. And then he said, and some people still want to do that. And who are those people? Who are the people who want to do it? I want to know who he means by that. What are the statistics? Show me the data. I guess the only two places you could look for data that would support such a wild accusation would be hate crime statistics and interracial statistics of violent crime. But when you look at those two categories of hate crimes, so-called whites are underrepresented. African-Americans are double their numbers in the demographics. If you look at interracial crime, which is it's rare compared to most crimes, it's about, a, you know, all murders and violent uh, so-called violent crimes. I think it's six to eight percent. But of that six per eight percent, depending on the particular crime, African-Americans are five times 
more likely to be the perpetrator against whites uh, than the victims. So when I look for, you know, it's like Mark Milley and the white rage. I just want to know where they get that information. Where does he know that? And the answer is he doesn't know it. And he's going back to his tropes and his demagoguery. Remember, put you all in chains. Mm. He warned people who voted for, of all people, moderate uh, Mitt Romney. But the weird thing about it was he said this on a Thursday. And on and this is kind of important. On a Wednesday, he went to Maryland and he said, you know, this new African-American very accomplished uh, new governor, who's I think his name's Wes Moore. He said, you know, and he always has this fake accent, kind of the Hillary Clinton patois dialect or the Obama fake inner city dialect. And so Biden, you know, he's introducing, he says, you got a hell of a new governor in Westmore. I tell ya, he's the real deal. And the boy looked like he could still play. He's got some guns on the boy. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's a, a racial slight. How can you say that on Wednesday and then accuse white people of wanting to lynch people on Thursday with no evidence? And more importantly, is that a gaffe? Because I remember in August of 2000, uh, 2021, he went down to New Orleans. Remember, and he said something to the effect, I'm here with my advisor and boy and boy and a boy who knows Louisiana and a boy. He said that yeah. before. I can't imagine. Victor, you would call a dog. Come here, boy. Or you would maybe call a little child. What a nice little boy. You're a good boy. And it, it like gets that. even worse, though, because you remember when they I think the New York Times printed a story that they they begged Joe Biden to stop praising Robert Byrd and James Old Eastland, the two segregationist senators that when he came up in the 70s were still in there and right. ran it. And he not only refused to do that, but he said something at once, you know, I I used to caucus with James O. Eastland. And then he said something very important. He never called me boy. He always called me son. And I'm thinking, OK, so you're telling me that this white segregationist was a great guy because he didn't call you boy. But you called two very accomplished right. African-American in your own presidential tenure as boy. Right. And this is on top of the corn pop racist fables. It's on top of the donut uh, remark shop. It's on top of you ain't black. It's on top of junkie. It's the satchel Negro. So he's got a whole history. The most, the most infamous black uh, Barack Obama was the first black candidate. Remember, that's articulate. So he's got a whole corpus of that. Right. And then he projects. And the left never says a word. So he can call, he can just blanketly stereotype an entire demographic of the what of being racist, but his own words convict himself. And I and no one says a word. And it reminds me so much of what Harry Reid said. You remember him? He said something to the effect that Obama was the first person that didn't have a Negro dialect unless he really wanted to have one. Mm -hmm. And then we had, uh, um, I want to be careful here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I remember she said that she was confused why uh, there was all the uh, people were upset over, you know, Roe versus Wade and abortion. She said, frankly, you know, I thought that 
when Roe was, you know, decided that there was a concern about, you know, I had too many people and we had particularly growth in populations. And then this was the key word. I remember it as if I read it yesterday. In populations, we don't want to have too many of. Mm-hmm. In other words, that was what that was the eugenicist argument. And that was given in the New Yorker and they kind of uh, hushed it up. So what I'm trying to say is that a lot of these very, very left wing people who are always alleging racism and other people themselves are very uncomfortable with the so-called other. And it, it it really is some kind of psychological mechanism where you square that circle about right. your own uncertainty about race by then making these blanket accusations. And, you know, it's it, it gets back to Joe Biden accusing people of whip, you know, who, and Mallorca's whipping uh, poor uh, Haitian refugees coming across, uh, not refugees, they were just illegally crossing uh, the Rio Grande. But it does filter down and it is it does filter down into concrete policies. And you can really see that in East Palestine. And and I know that this will ring true to our audience. If there was a derailing of cars, say near the PCH in Malibu, and if those cars were not leaking, but they had inert acetylbutane or vinyl chloride vinyl in them. chloride, right. Yep. PVC is basically what it is that mm-hmm. makes PVC pipes. And they decided that they didn't want to pump them out or they were worried about, and they vented that. And you had a huge toxic plume sitting over Brentwood, Pacific Palisades and Malibu or, or, or Compton, Watts and South Central LA, either one. Right. You would have an outrage. You would have Biden down there. You would have FEMA. They're not even down there in a way. So what I'm getting at is if you're very, very, very privileged and white, Biden will address that and do, you know, you're the the chosen people. If you're a so-called minority, he will go that too. But if you're a poor white, poor white, he has nothing but contempt. You can see it The reason he doesn't go to East Palestine, you want to know why he doesn't go? Just see what he said the other day when he accused people of still wanting to see people lynch and celebrate it. That's right. Victor, the really he's really being despicable. He really is. I I cannot get this image. Uh, They said that Reagan was had a Teflon Teflon veneer. But when you think of Joe Biden, my God, this family is demonstrably the most corrupt presidential family we've ever encountered. And he has said the craziest racist things. They got mad at Trump for saying Haiti is an S-H-I-T hole. Remember? And that was proof of his racism, supposedly. But compared to Biden, and there's zilch, nothing. Well, it spreads to others, too. Imagine if the shoe was on the other foot somehow. And I, I think this is a terrible game to play, but what the hell? What if some Republican had some said something akin to what Biden said about this movie on on Emmett Till, exploited Emmett Till? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Death. He'd and, be all and, through. He'd be all but, through. But if James Carville was plotting, he'd say, oh, yeah, the, the most recent murder uh, a la Emmett Till was, was uh, Tyree Nichols in Memphis killed by five black men. 
you know, yeah. they, they, they would play that game immediately. There's oh, no yeah. question. Of, course, of course they do. And, and then the other thing is racial demagoguery is not coming from the lower middle white class. It's coming in refined tones from the upper white middle class, upper, upper, upper class, whether it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Harry Reid or Joe Biden. It's coming from that class, A, and it's coming from the privileged African-American class. I can remember back in the 2012 election, Chris Rock said that, oh, it's Fourth of July. Remember that? It's happy white people's day. And then I remember they later they asked Jamie Foxx about, is it uh, Dongo Unchained, the Quentin Tarantino movie, what right. it was like. So they were after, remember, for using the N-word in that movie. And they were after Tarantino because it's 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 filled with that slur all through that movie in, in the dramatic context of the times. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, I kill all the white people in the movie. How great is that? Nobody said a word. And I remember Jay-Z, they all love Jay-Z, came to the White House and he had that weird badge, the 5% nation badge on. And that 5% referred to this radical subset of the nation of Islam that hates white people and wants to kill them and get rid of them and they're wicked. And he had it on. And I thought to myself, my God. How can he get away with that? And then I remember that CNN, Ellie Mistel, that CNN talking head, he said right during the COVID, uh, well, when COVID's over, I just don't think I can take white people anymore. I, I just can't. I just don't want to be around them. Or that psychiatrist at Yale University who said she dreams of she was a visiting psychiatrist, I should point out. And she said she dreams of shooting white people, killing them. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. And and I don't. You know, it uh, doesn't matter to me if they want to talk. It's a free country. But what gets me so angry is that Joe Biden then projects what his social class says onto the white working right. class or wealthy, privileged blacks like Sonny Holston on The View who say that Republicans go to Trump like roaches do to raid. Uh, they and Whoopi Goldberg says, hey, the Holocaust was just a, a, a fight between some white people. You know, when they say outrageous stuff like that and Biden and his class say it does filter down. And yeah. how does it how does it reified manifest? It's manifest like nobody gives a damn about this white community of 98 percent white. Very impoverished, middle class, lower middle class, right on the Pennsylvania border, i.e. it's right next to the Pennsylvania precincts that ensured that Barack Obama in 2008 would lose to Hillary Clinton and then incited him off on these people cling to their guns, their Bible, right. their religion, the clinger speech. Right. And and so they just. I bet FEMA's not even there. You would have thought on day one, they yeah. would have said, oh, my God, these things are explosive. We're going to vent them. Let's bring in tents. Let's bring in cots. Let's bring in semis full of food. Let's bring in mobile kitchen and get right. set it up 20 miles, uh, you know, upwind. Well, Victor, yeah, Victor, I got to say, I, you're right, generally, because this happened weeks ago. I think it was just yesterday when we're recording. Uh, that that they're doing it now. The APA commissioner Regan, I think is his name, uh, showed showed up there. And, and what uh, is but and Pete Buttigieg's whole purpose was 
whenever they have a problem like this, it's always Donald Trump did it. So the balloons was Donald Trump. We were told that this happened first with Donald Trump. He didn't even know about it. And now we're told that in 2018, he relaxed the regulations for rail cars. He did, but it had nothing to do with toxic chemicals. It had something to do with, as I recall, oil being transmit, uh, transferred. He didn't. They didn't call that toxic, so they didn't require some type of electric braking system on a, a car. I don't think he should have done it, but it was completely irrelevant to what happened. But in their mind... They can't deal with a problem, so it's Donald Trump. And Pete Buttigieg, no, why doesn't he go there? Because he has contempt for those people. And more importantly, he knows that if he were to go there, it would not be an MSNBC puff piece interview. He right. understands that. They would address him in a town hall, and he wouldn't like it. And it wouldn't, oh. be, homo it wouldn't be homophobic. It would be, who in the hell do you think you are as Department of Transportation Secretary to just write us off as nobodies? Uh, well, and on top of that, Victor, and there's a lot to put on top of Buttigieg here, because we can go down the laundry list of the other kind of transportation. And we will later on the show, we'll talk about some of the air calamities or near calamities. Um, and and where's Buttigieg actually, you know, half the time he's on vacation or on family leave or I don't know, you know, chest feeding his son or whatever the hell he does. But uh, uh, his absence is is very noticeable in the face of uh, critical events uh, related to transportation. Because remember, the ship's out in the ocean. Where What the hell is he doing? He's on he's on family leave. Um, and then, though, when he finally did speak out about this. Uh, train derailment this week it was it was this weird and really obnoxious well you know there's oh, a thousand yeah, train derailments yeah. in america I mean, I was like, oh what are you bragging about that yeah there's <laughs> a thousand there's three a day well yeah there's three toxic plumes sitting over a community of five thousand people killing fish and burning their lungs every day i don't think so pete yeah but but he, he's he's absolutely predictable we when you talk about Pete Buttigieg and he should resign or be impeached or fired, it, it's hard to to know who is the most incompetent cabinet member. Right. Is it that crazy Jennifer Grisham that started laughing when somebody asked her about why don't they pump more oil and gas? Is it Mayorkas who keeps, <laughs> you know, he's sort of like this idiot that said that, this demonstration was mostly peaceful. I think it was on MSNBC as the flames shot up in the sky. And the same thing is true. He always seems to have a backdrop of the border with hundreds of people crossing. And as he claims, it's secure. So there's so many mediocrities, Blinkens. So I don't know where you would start. Yeah. Can I just um, indul indulge me here to yeah. our listeners that, that uh, Marco Rubio yesterday wrote uh, to Biden uh, urging him to uh, fire or to immediately demand the res resignation of Buttigieg. Of course, Biden responded somehow or other. I don't know. He never has press conferences, but his comment was he has absolute confidence in Buttigieg. And in his letter, though, um, uh, Rubio 
does a nice quick little recounting of uh, Buttigieg's history here. Unfortunately, part, he calls it a two-year-long pattern during the historic maritime surface transportation disruptions in 2021. Secretary Buttigieg to- completely absent. Amidst an impending possible rail strike late last year, Secretary Buttigieg le- left the country to vacation in Portuguese wine country. Near misses in commercial aviation as well as recent system failures, failures including the one that shut down air travel in Florida in January, indicate that serious and persistent problems across the Department of Transportation are not being sufficiently remedied, et cetera, et cetera. The, 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 um, the ramifications of, of Pete Buttigieg's incompetence, not only these poor 5,000 people living in the, in the midst of this, you know, hell hole in, uh, in Ohio, it just billions, I mean, the cost has to be hundreds of billions of dollars and affect all Americans very deeply. I can remember most egregiously flying over the port of Los Angeles in 2021, and it struck me. Three things struck me. One, I counted the ships that were out docked. uh, I shouldn't say docked, anchored in the harbor all the way out to the horizon. There was 19 of them I could count. I read that there was actually 70 of them. And then I noticed as we circled around over the, uh, the port, there were these containers like they had somebody had just thrown them everywhere. You know what I mean by that trailer? There were containers. They weren't stacked up in a row. They were at every angle in all of the storage lots, meaning they were all full and they were just. And then the weirdest thing, third was there were trailers and empty trailers, container trailers that were parked in residential streets. In other words, these truckers went in there and they waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And finally, they they couldn't wait any longer. So they just dumped their their cargo anywhere they could find it. And then they got they dumped the trailer somewhere and took off home. I guess they were going to come back back or something. But it was a complete mess. And then they had those pictures of Wild West looting. Remember that? All of these Amazon packages on the ground on the uh, trains that were entering and leaving the port where people had just stole, just looted them. And all of it was almost every aspect of transportation was in complete chaos. I was thinking about this the other day. Two weeks ago, I went down to Los Angeles and I thought, you know, Pete Buttigieg is secretary of transportation. The Federal Aviation Administration is in big trouble. The guy doesn't know what he's doing. And we have all these problems. I'm going to go to LAX four hours early. So I got to LAX. I opened the door and boom, every power, not, not just a screen here. Everything went out. There was no power for about an hour. And then when it came on, all these flights were canceled up until. And luckily, I was three hours and a half after that. But my point is, everybody understands now that when you want to take a train or you get in a car and you look at construction or you get on a plane, it's it's. It's in chaos. And this guy hasn't done anything. He's he's absolutely done nothing. He had no qualifications whatsoever. The only qualification he had is the only qualification he had when he ran. He was trying to argue that he was the first openly gay candidate for president. And that should, by definition of identity politics, make you want to vote for him. But when you looked at his record as mayor of a small town like South Bend, Indiana, they used to call him what? Pothole Pete? Because he Mm -hmm. couldn't fix the streets. And 
I think everybody's got to take a deep breath and think there's two problems with this whole identity politics uh, woke revolution. One is commission and one is omission. One is deliberately destroying merit and hiring people or admitting them or giving them preference on the basis of their superficial appearance rather than any meritocratic criterion. In other words, tribalism of the most rank sort, pre-civilizational tribalism that always dooms civilizations. First cousin, Middle Easternism. The second is omission, that when you're doing all of this stuff, you don't have time for anything else. If you're in the Pentagon and you're just talking about how... How can I get promoted for promoting transgender subsidized surgeries or what percentage of women are gays or blacks or Latinos or Native Americans? Did I get promoted under my generalship? If you're thinking of that, then you, you're not thinking about what's going on in Afghanistan or you'll tell the American people, as Mark Milley did in June, that he had full confidence in the, uh, the Afghan forces to be sustainable. Or we have full confidence that the Russians will take Kiev in 72 hours. So they're not competent because they're a commissariat and they're using ideology uh, and identity politics uh, in lieu of merit. But they're putting so much emphasis. It's like Stanford University having 16,000 students, but 15,000 administrators and administrative staffers. When you're putting that much investment, then you're not... You don't have time. Are these kids in school? What was it? Not one school in a Mar in a, a Baltimore school district. Not one student in one school of any of them. They couldn't find one person that was up to to standards as far as math competency was concerned. Same thing was wow. yeah. And Illinois oh, was the same. There wasn't one person in a school oh. district, inner city district, and yet. You want to ask yourself, how many courses do they have in diversity, equity and inclusion and identity politics, all of that stuff? And these yeah. we are turning out a very, very ignorant and arrogant young group of people. They're not getting a rigorous education because of all of these superfluous isms and ologies. And they're right. getting and they're told to be very arrogant about that. Yeah. They're they're morally superior to past and current generations. And you know, the Chinese aren't doing this. I'm sorry. And they and other countries are not doing this. And I was looking at the graduate program at 58 percent in electrical engineering and Ph.D. program at Stanford are foreign students. Forty eight percent. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, Victor, I, you, this is a good point just to mention to, to our listeners uh, on the on the uh, the plane front. Airplanes. You have a your most recent column is destroying meritocracy is deadly, and it you know, has to do with what are the actual ramifications of uh, of a tribal based. Yeah, and, and I I didn't go into it in detail, although I, I did a lot of research for that uh, column. You know, it was that San Francisco. It was a, it, there were all different types of planes. Seven seventy seven that took off. It was going to San Francisco from Maui, and it almost crashed. And I know that there was inclement weather, and the pilots were very skilled, but something went wrong. It was either the aircraft controller gave them a false sense of security to take off, or the plane wasn't serviced right. But planes don't do that in rough weather. And then we had that where you are, that Kennedy 
uh, Delta Airlines that basically they almost crashed. It almost crashed into an American air. That had to be yeah, 75 uh, feet. Difference. That was probably an air traffic control. We had the FedEx in Austin that just I think they missed by 100 feet. Then we had an LAX. Remember, they were towing out the jet. And they just hit a bus, <laughs> but towing this big super. Uh, I think it was an Airbus three twenty one, and they hit they hit a bus. Right, and and then we had the course. Everybody knows about Southeast uh, Southwest Airlines completely shut down for almost a day and a half, and canceled for another three days. A lot of their sixty percent of their flights, and then we had. The bad weather at Christmas where the whole grid, I guess that was a computer glitch for two or three hours in the morning that shut down the whole air system. We hadn't seen that since 9-11. Yeah. And, and so my question is, when you look at what the FAA has been saying and the Department of Transportation has been saying and United Airlines has been saying about their pilot training, it's all diversity, equity, inclusion. They're never talking about United Airlines does not have a communique. Maybe they do, but they're not advertising it. But we have increased rigorous 10 more hours for pilot training, 30 right. more out. They're always saying that 50 percent of all of our uh, trainees will be diverse or the FFA said that we're going to use particular language or we're going to. But they never talk about increased competency, more rigorous training, et cetera. It's always about lowering standards or becoming more diverse. And it's it's it does filter down to the real world. Yeah. Here's a, yeah let me tell you an example, Victor, of something I heard that's not related to you know travel here, but coaching. Uh, a friend of mine, whose name I'm not going to give. But he, he became coach of a high school team and had, of course, you have to take some training. And what do you think the training was about? Like, it's if if you're a white guy and if there's a black kid and they you, they need to be corrected about something, you know, think twice before you do it. It's very specific about that, you know, about injecting clear race, racial differences in training for coaches. Well, I know it. What kind of training it, is happening in America that doesn't it, have some. I, I mentioned I mentioned that before it filters down to the street so that there are and it, it happens on all races. And so in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, if the word got out, you could beat to death an Emmett Till and you would be acquitted. Then you're going to have more of that because every thug deranged person in the world not that they're very numerous, but they are out there, will do it. Yeah. And if you have you send the opposite message that you're going to decriminalize or defund the police, then you're going to get something like and you and you send the same message in the, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. It was black people are inferior. But if you send the message, white people are evil or you're Jay-Z with the five percent badge or you joke like Fox, I, I was how great is that killing white people? That's going to or, you know, raid and, and women and spraying women that vote for Trump, all that crap. It's going to filter down. So you're going to get somebody on the PCH that, as I said last time, hits a doctor, walks over, stabs him to death and says white privilege. Right. Or are you going to get a bus in Florida where a little tiny girl is beaten to a pulp by two black teenagers and nobody does anything. Or you're going to get that latest one, that horrible one with that little boy in Virginia. He would look like he was almost malnourished, had this big black woman trying to choke him to death right on the bus. And you're going to get more of that. 
because yeah. you have to have deterrence. Deterrence makes the world go around. Everybody has to understand that if you do commit a crime or you do something that's violent, there will be consequences and that prevents you from doing it. But once you start this verbal campaign that's racist and you say this stuff, that's, that, 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 then people will react to it. And then it's going to cause a. And so when you have a, a white racist South that condones that by acquitting a violent murder of a black teenager, then you're going to encourage a backlash. And they had that backlash with the black militant group that took over the civil rights movement because of people, you know, they thought we're going to be able to capitalize on civil rights for a different agenda than Martin Luther King's. Well, the same thing will happen if there's going to be a reaction to that. And right. you can already see it happening. There's there's a growing anger. And I hope it doesn't manifest itself in the same way. But I think everybody should take a deep breath and say, I'm not going to talk about race. I'm not going to disparage any group collectively. We're all individuals. Right. And well, how can you do that when the president of the United States does it every oh, day? Though? Exactly. You know, Victor, you and I talk a lot about race on this program because it's being injected by ideologues uh, into every aspect of our life and our life in its totality. I'm 60. I'm pushing 63. And I've said this before in this podcast. I grew up in the Bronx and in really bad times, crime wise, and the racial tension was off the charts. But and then I, as I look back, let's say 10 years or so ago in my own home and in my own extended family, you know, the racial divisions in America were healing. There's no question they were. Oh, they were. Intermarriage was evidence of this. I look and I was the publisher of National Review and the publisher of National Review's house every night. There were black kids, gay kids, whatever the heck. It's not patting my back. It's just it's a reality. And Obama and Biden's injection of race into um, a division into our what was a healing nation is, is a truly evil thing. That You can see it without you can take an iconic figure like Oprah Winfrey. She was a, but prior to Obama. She appealed to everybody. And she was the most popular woman in America. She was a multi-billionaire. And why was she? Because she diminished race. She tried to appeal to women who were watching TV during the day on the basis of common interest that transcended, transcended racial differences. Once she started going into the woke movement during the Obama era, she ended up as a caricature, a, a multi-billion dollar woman complaining that some Swiss attendant didn't bring down a $38,000 crocodile bag quick enough for her. And that was a microaggression. That's where we went off. It was as soon as Obama ran for office and he started to say things like uh, I read his memoir when he said, I just kind of I just decided not to date white women anymore or. Uh, when he threw his mother, grandmother under the bus and said, you know, every time she heard a black man come, uh, she got on, you know, unusually. I thought, well, maybe she just looked at crime statistics of that particular city she was in and made the necessary adjustments not to be commended. But maybe that was what she did rather than being a racist. But he attacked his own grandmother. Then there was the Trayvon Martin, the son that I never had that would have looked like me. Then there was the Gates thing where he said the police, everybody knows the police do this as they did to skip Gates. It was just non-ending, non-ending, non-ending. And that's that kind of ripped off the scab instead of healing. 
we went where we are now. And it's it's Joe Biden is it's just reprehensible that someone like that with the most questionable record on racial harmony should ever, ever pontificate about people being racist with no evidence. I can remember when that guy during the 70s, he carved out this persona that he was going to be the point man in the Democratic Party against busing. He was going to be the point man. Remember about criminals and life sentences for drug dealers. And I think he used the word jungle at one point. And Mm -hmm. he he was that was his persona. And what he did to Clarence Thomas was thinly disguised racial condescension. It really was. And for him now to be president and to lecture, lecture, lecture is really despicable. I don't mind if I don't mind at all if Mark Milley wants to get up before Congress under oath and says, you know what? We have a big problem with white rage and white privilege. And here are the statistics. We did a survey and we asked the ranks, do you feel comfortable with? And it came out that one group, white people, showed an inordinate racial prejudice toward other. I would have no problem. He didn't do that. All he did was piggyback on the post-George Floyd hysteria, the BLM movement, and he wanted to virtue signal. And then he basically said that the military had a problem and he was going to get to the bottom of white rage and read Professor Kendi's book. And he and Austin were going to make sure that the ranks were free of white races without any evidence that there was a problem with white racism. And as I keep saying, the only problem they have since they live in the world of proportionality was they had one demographic that died at twice their numbers in combat. Well, Victor, we have, um, I'm glad you talked about the military because uh, we have um, some really head scratching and troubling actions by the Secretary of Defense. And we're going to get to that right after uh, these important messages. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Hey, Victor, we also today we have a uh, a sponsor for the uh, for our program, and that's Cardi and Company. I'd like to tell our listeners about it. Cardi and Company is a family operated and nationally recognized fixed income investment firm with more than 50 years of experience. Cardi and Company is licensed in all 50 states with expertise serving both individual and institutional investors. Um, what's Cardi and Company into? I'll tell you what. They're into tax-exempt bonds. Interest income on municipal bonds is generally exempt from federal taxes and also often exempt from state and local taxes. So uh, it's a you know it's a very stable and worthwhile investment can be. Um, how does Cardi and Company, you know, they, it's a company. They make money. How do they do it? Well, there's the, they have an annual fee, but that's it. They do not charge uh, their clients an ongoing uh, fee. Um, just one-time uh, commission. Cardi and Company also actively helps local governments borrow funds to improve their communities through municipal bonds, giving their 
investor clients primary access to these investments. If I may say for 15 seconds, having served on a city council, the board of Alderman of Milford, Connecticut, and when you got a big project like a, you know, redo the storage treatment plant that's going to cost 80 million bucks, you need municipal bonds to do that. The taxpayers need municipal bonds to do that. So it's a very important financial tool for every town and uh, county in America. So friends, listeners, if you want control of your financial destination and decisions, but also want an experienced and knowledgeable person's guide based on your risk tolerance and financial objectives, visit Cartico.com. Cartico, how do you spell that? C-A-R-T-Y-C-O.com. Generally, uh, for investments of $5,000 and up. So find the investment that's right to you. Again, visit Cartico.com. That's C-A-R-T-Y-C-O.com. Cardi and Company Inc. do not provide tax accounting or legal advice to their clients, and all investors are advised to consult with their own tax accounting or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Municipal securities may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax, the famous or the infamous AMT. So please contact your tax advisor regarding suitability tax-exempt investment for your portfolio. Cardi and Company Inc. is a member of F-I-N-R-A, FINRA, and SIPC. I'm not even going to pronounce it. I just did. Thank you, Cardi and Company, for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, uh, Victor, uh, our uh, Secretary of Defense. Gosh, I can't. What's his name? It just escaped me. Lloyd Austin. Uh, Lloyd Austin, yeah. Who is a Catholic, by the way? Roman Catholic. It does matter because once again, instead of you know, what's the purpose of the department, the Department of Defense besides sending tons of uh, weaponry over to Ukraine? It's to de- it's to defend America, but the the focus is of course on abortion. So your know, federal law, Hyde Amendment, precludes the federal use of taxpayer funds to pay for abortion. But damn it, this Biden administration, what are they going to do? The Department of Defense, okay, we can't. If you're if you're a service woman, you get pregnant. Well, we we can't pay for it. But you know what? We're going to give you off. We're going to give you the time off to go fly to one of these states that offer them for free. Some of these like Disneyland, sorry, Disney abortion meccas of California and Connecticut's trying to become one. So you're going to get the time off at taxpayer expense. And we're going to fly you there too. travel expense. Yes. The travel expenses. This is this is this is our Department of Defense. I don't quite understand that, how they get around the Hyde Amendment by paying people to travel federal dollars to get an abortion, but they do. And this is all superimposed on a number of stories in in the media right now. And one of them is that we are dangerously short of artillery shells, javelin missiles, rockets, spare parts. Uh, for our arsenal given Ukraine, and that's either due to poor procurement management or naivete or cuts or what, transfers of money in the Pentagon budget from buying artillery shells to stuff like this. And the other is we still, you know, we've talked to death about the balloon, but we're shooting down a hobby balloon at five hundred thousand to four hundred and eighty thousand dollars a crack with a sidewinder missile, and you're and basically the military is telling us, Lloyd Austin's military, we do not have a airplane that can operate over fifty thousand feet to go, I guess, 
shoot a cannon, you know, 20 millimeter or something into this balloon very cheaply. It was very funny. Somebody sent me an email, one of the readers, like it was from Russia today. I don't even, you know, I've never watched it. I've never been on it. But the point was they were boasting the Russians were, and I mentioned this to Sammy, uh, after I, I saw, I mentioned something to Sammy, and then it was like one of those weird moments where what you mentioned later comes true. Because of two days later, I looked at the email, and here it is that the Russians were bragging that their MiG thirty two can function at at that altitude. We can't. Our SR seventy one could at one point, but my point is this: that we have fundamental problems with the U.S. military, and they run the gamut of 25 to 35% short on recruitment, lowering of standards to get the necessary bodies in the Air Force and in the Army and in the Navy. They run the gamut of depleting our strategic stocks, arsenals of very important weapons. They run the gamut of apparently having a porous air defense shield over the continental United States where balloons can come through undetected. We'll, we'll never know the truth because they haven't been honest about whether it was undetected or not, but they feigned that it was. And then the inability to shoot down a sub-tech, low-tech balloon without using a high-tech, sophisticated, very expensive weapon. And so... Given all of those things, and we could go on about the inability to defend Taiwan, I don't know why they're doing this. Why are they doing this? Why are they spending all this money on subsidizing transgender surgeries or this woke uh, training that doesn't have anything to do with battlefield efficacy? It's it's so redolent of the Soviet army, as I keep saying, or the the Wehrmacht, where ideology trumped competency and trump calculations of how to defeat the enemy on the battlefield. And we were always the we were always the consensual open free society that was unbound by ideological constraints. And so we were empirical. We promoted people on merits. We we reacted to the world on the battlefield through empiricism. We were not deductive, but here we are in the year 2023. It's almost we, we want to regress to a pre-modern mentality. Also, Victor, and uh, I, I didn't mention this before the show, but I don't know if you saw the news that the, the renaming uh, binge in the Department of Defense uh, ca- continues on. The Let's eradicate the names of any conf- member of the Confederate Army okay. off of any uh, institution or building, etc. So the... The Navy, there's, you may have even been in this place. I know you taught at the Naval Academy for, uh, a, a while ago, but there's a place there called Maury Hall. Yes, uh, I know. And I know. It's named after, yeah, named after Matthew Fontaine Maury. He's considered the father of naval oceanography. He joined the Confederacy. Regardless, the building had been named after him probably for over 100 years. And uh, this week, it, it's been replaced as being named after Jimmy Carter, a former president. Jimmy Carter was a submariner himself. Actually, he did something, I, I believe, pretty brave on, on a submarine once that looked like it was going to have a, a nuclear a leak uh, or uranium leak. But that continues on. I'm, I'm sure there will sooner than later, there will not be a single member of the Confederacy who, who's who 
who they the men they fought against sought who, who probably should have hated them more than anyone else sought reconciliation and healing yeah. with them on behalf of the for the sake of the nation but we'll we'll we will continue down this road Any, I, I i don't yeah i do i mean it requires just a modicum just a little tiny bit of historical knowledge that in the traumatic years after the civil war there was this idea that these wounds would never heal because to defeat the the South, we didn't just defeat it on the battlefield, as William Tecumseh Sherman said. And he said very controversially, and they relieved him of command for other reasons. But when he was in charge of the Western Theater, he gave an interview to the Cincinnati, I think it was the Observer. He said that you're going to have to kill 300,000 of these people. He called them cavaliers. What he meant was the plantation class. And that's about what we did the Union. But there were 700,000 killed for very, not just on the battlefield, but disease, etc. So after that trauma, there was this national effort to reach out. And part of it was the, the realization that in this awful slaves holding society, about six to eight percent, depending on how you define that group, held slaves. But the majority of people fought that didn't have slaves. They fought maybe for slavery. They did fight for slavery, but they didn't really fight for slavery in the sense that to them, they were fighting for other reasons. It might have been hatred of the North. It might have been the protection of the heartland of Georgia against Sherman, whatever it was. But they... And they might have been racist. They might not. We don't know. But the point I'm making is not that I disagree or agree with any of this, but to go back historically and look what people were trying to do in the late 1870s and 80s. They were trying to heal the country and they were trying to say there was such a thing as an honorable Confederate that was not involved in slavery, even though a lot of the generals held slaves. It may have been naive. It may have been doomed. But the in, the intent was we don't want to ever do this again in the United States. And you can see what Hollywood did. You can see it so easily. All during the 1950s, this was still true. So if you look at most of the Hollywood heroes in Westerns, what did they have in common? They were Confederates. So Shane, what does he say right before he blows away uh, Wilson, the gunslinger? Jack you, Palance. You know, you know, good Yankee. You know, thing. good Yankee liar. Right. And what is who is John Wayne comes up through the door of John Ford's wonderful scene, that shot where he comes right in. Where is he coming from? He's coming from Texas, Texas Rangers. He fought. It's kind of suggested he was fighting for Quantrell, uh, one of those awful Confederate. But the point was that the heroic people and who were making these films, right wing people? No. Many of them were Jewish immigrants, immigrants from war torn Europe or right from getting out. Right out of yeah, or John Ford, or, Irish from Maine. Yeah, we probably he probably knew uh, Chamberlain or Eli Kazan, part of the Greek diaspora out of Asia Minor. So they right. were coming here, and they realized very quickly the country was still torn apart. And in almost every single Western, these people are, and there's so many Westerns where it's obvious that they're trying to say, "Hey, Northerner, hey, Southerner, to get along," and. Uh, so my point is that when you start destroying in a blanket fashion, 
every single person who's associated with the Confederacy, you're assuming that those that there's no historical downside from that or and that the people who did it were abject racists. I'm trying to suggest to you that they weren't. They may have been naive, but they weren't racist. Their, their intentions were good in many cases. And many people, I don't know what the majority, nobody does, of the Confederacy were not white racists. They fought for a bad cause, evil cause, but they didn't see it that way. Some of them didn't. And that's just like saying that the hor- the horrible, the probably the worst military force that was ever created was the SS and the Wehrmacht. And I can say that most people fought that were racist fought for the SS, but not everybody fought for the SS is what I'm saying. Right. They were drafted and you were an 18 year old in Germany and your family had been there for centuries. What were you going to do? But you were fighting for an evil regime. And that's tragedy. Because you didn't see it that way. You were trying to keep alive, survive. But this new woke has no nuance. You yeah. can really see it with the first uh, Ken Burns movie, Civil War, when they had they tried to he tried to cultivate Shelby Foote, right. who was a diehard Southerner and who was on record of saying, you know what, if I had been alive in 1860 as a young man, I probably would have fought for the Confederacy, for my native Tennessee, or he said that, lived in Memphis. And they had Southerners with Mary Chestnut's diary. There was, it was kind of a reconciliation, the music, and it was a tragedy. It was not melodrama. It was perceived as tragedy. It was very critical of the racist South and very, very uh, interested in emphasizing the role of slavery and black troops in the North. But that movie could never be. I've said that twice now. That movie could never be made today. And if you look at his later movies, it's just very okay. different. Burns, yeah, yeah. No, very nor different. Would, yeah, and nor would Ken Burns make it that way himself. No, he would yeah. not. Right, right. And and fact, he couldn't. He couldn't make that movie today, and he knows it too. Yeah. Well, we have we have just a little time left, and maybe enough uh, to talk about one uh, other subject uh, quickly. Uh, there's a p- particular p- uh, piece that was reported last week on Fox News. Was a piece? Was an op-ed about the Biden administration coming from uh, for the family farm, and as a as a farmer, I'm sure that rings pretty. Uh, close to you. So we'll get your thoughts on that in a a few minutes, right after this final important message. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Before we get to this uh, op-ed piece, Victor, I'd just like to remind our listeners to visit victorhanson.com. That's your official home on the worldwide webs and the piece mentioned earlier on meritocracy you'll find that there you'll find many pieces that you've written exclusively they're called ultra pieces and anyone who's a fan of victor davis hansen's writing if you want the totality of it you've got to subscribe to victorhanson.com it's five dollars to to get in the door and fifty dollars for for a year victor writes a, a lot a lot of material exclusively for that website. So that's victorhanson.com. And as for me, Jack Fowler, I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at what is now Amphil. Used to be American Philanthropic, but it's now Amphil. I give a dozen plus recommended readings, interesting things, things that I think an intelligent person might 
want to read. You don't have to, but here's a link. Here's an excerpt from a great article by so-and-so. So check it out. Totally free. No risk. We're not selling your name anywhere. That's civilthoughts.com. Victor, so um, and if I could locate this piece on my computer without ginning up any noise. Yeah, there's a t- um, Kent Hoffman has written this piece for Fox News. Why Joe Biden is coming for my family's 70 year old farm. So on top of what all the the, the risk, as you know, and we've talked about on the show for, for many, t- many times about the risk that comes to every farmer. Now we have in America this push that if the, it seems like there's a drop of water somewhere. Uh, regulations by our more liberal administrations, i.e. Obama tried to do this, and now Biden is, are trying to invoke these water regulations that are going to give uh, control um, of land, much of it farmland, to the federal government. It's a real threat to people who are risking their you know, all their resources, uh, working 18 hours a day, It's in, uh, producing the food that we eat, this is insane. Victor, what are your thoughts about this? Well, you know, uh, when I wrote The Dying Citizen, Chapter 4 was called The Unelected. And I pointed out this law that is now back in the news again, the Inland Waterways Act, and how an EPA bureaucrat reinterpreted that not as a navigable water, but any standing water in a, a farm. So there were cases here where I live in Central California on the west side where after rains, any low spot will collect water. And so the EPA, whether state or federal version, will come out and test that water and see if it is polluted. Well, of course it is. It has runoff from fertilizer and everything. Nobody's going to drink it and it filters back into the water. But that was not what the law was intended for. And so it's, again, the the idea of an enterprising EPA with the power of the federal government knows that they can go out and any particular farmer they don't like or feels that they should target, they can go out and misinterpret the law and test his water or her water on her farm and then declare her in violation of an Inland Waterways Act. And that's exactly what the EPA has done with all of its legislation. It just takes what the law ostensibly says and then expands it on the proviso that if you file a complaint or you cite a farmer, they're not going to have enough money to contest it. They don't have the resources that you do, and you can bully them into fines or or some type of rectification according to your whims. And it's... It's. I don't think anybody has any idea what farmers mm-hmm. uh, put up with. And I mentioned, as you know, in the dying citizen, I mentioned, and I think uh, Sammy and I talked. We don't. Uh, when I was a raisin farmer, we didn't own our raisins, so we would have Thompson seedless grapes. I think we owned them. We had titled the land. We planted them ourselves, or my great grandfather, grandfather, or mother planted them. But depending on the vineyard, but when we cut the grapes, Jack, we dry them, and guess what? They were became raisins. We stacked it, we shook them, and we got them in bins, and we were going to take them either to Sunmate or a private packer, and we didn't own them. The federal government owned them. Our raisins. It's, 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 I, I can't, still can't conceive yes. that. So if I have 100 tons... And I say, I'm going to sell this to bakers. The federal government said, you don't have this year. The federal government has determined that the reserve tonnage is 30 percent and only 70 percent is free tonnage. That 30 percent belongs to us. 
and we will negotiate what we pay for it, but we're going to take it off the domestic market. It is illegal for you in your barnyard to take one forklift bin out of that stack. Don't try it. And you have you can take a pound or two for personal consumption, but you do not own those raisins. So you take them in and then say, I take 100 tons in, I get paid for 60, 70 tons, depending on what the free tonnage is. And then the government decides, well, to prop up the price, I'm going to give the other 30% away in foreign aid. Sometimes we got 20 bucks a ton, $20 a ton for free tonnage, or they gave it to cattle feed. And sometimes they threw it away or it rotted, but you don't own it. And another thing that people don't understand is you can be a packer with 2 million crates of peaches coming out of your bin and you'll have certain inspectors, but you can be a small farmer with maybe a thousand a day and you'll still be inspected. But the inspection rate per box will be so much greater. The, the federal government does not like small farmers. They claim they have a special division of small farming and organic farming. But what they mean by that is an acre or two or kind of a hipster right. type operation. They do not like the middle operator and they go after him all the time, all the time. And yeah, 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 the other side of the mouth was all oh, for years. The family farm, the family farm, like it's uh, a, a, a secret to- thing. Uh, a lot of it was good, but I used to, when I was farming full-time, and I still walk around the farm and it's reduced fashion tonight, I just would say to myself, today I'm going to see 10 people from some government agency that are not going to ask me to come onto my place. And so what I would meant, there would be the consolidated ditch tender. The water would go through our place on a communal ditch. So anytime he wanted, he could just come on and inspect the underground pipeline. And then I'd say, there's a mosquito abatement person. He could come on and see if I had a low spot with some water so he could spray an insecticide. I didn't have to ask my permission or anything. And then I would see an assessor, or then I would see the power company, or then I would see the gas company, or then I would see official from the Raisin Administrative Committee, something like that. Almost every day, there would be somebody I don't know who didn't ask permission and I thought to myself, do, do people just walk into your house without knocking? But that's the idea it is with farming. And as I said earlier, we had a big wall on our packing house when we started, my brothers and I, in 1980, we started packing our own fruit. There were right. two regulations. When I quit farming actively, I still puttered around in 92 or three, that whole wall was covered. It was covered with regulations. I mean, it was just amazing. Every single one from the state of California, federal government, it was just amazing. I thought, who has the money, the money to to keep up with this? And then you, and, and again, it's you always regulate and you target the compliant for psychological satisfaction that you, the bureaucrat, are productive. And then after you've fixated on the misdemeanor, if there is one, you justify the fact you are completely inept, inert, unable to do anything about the felony. So while this was all going on, 600 yards away, there were people with porta potties that were draining them on their land. There was horses that were corralled in a horse farm that weren't getting enough food. There were violations of building codes, zoning, and they couldn't. And you would point that out. 
And their attitude is, are you crazy? And so that, that's where I think Americans are so angry right now, the middle class. They say, you know what? You guys always regulate us. You always monitor us. You're always – and yet that gives you some some type of psychological satisfaction that you're impotent. And by that, I mean Joe Biden has 87,000 IRS people, and it's already come out that they're going to go after tips now. So some – young woman who's got two kids who's making $16 an hour in California. If they, and that, I know that's a lot, but you know, it's close to the minimum wage. Right. She's going to, we have to report every single, you know, guy said that was a great meal. Here's, here's five bucks. She's got to uh-huh. report that. And then you think of the Biden family, the Biden family, and you look at Joe's three big homes. His 10% at, tip. <laughs> exactly. And you look at Hunter Hunter's money and you say to yourself, why doesn't the federal government just go back and look at all of their reported income for those years and see if the reported income in any conceivable fashion would have supported the lifestyles that they lived? And when they talk about on the laptop that or the phone records that Hunter needs 100000 from Joe, Joe, did they pay gift tax on that? Because that's over the limit you know, the 15 to 17,000 you're allowed to give a child. Uh, so that's all I'm saying is why don't you go after that? They did with Trump. They went after every single thing. And the House Ways and Means Committee got his tax records. Why don't right. they do that with all of these people? But why go after tips? And that's what I don't understand. This The whole justification for the administrative state is to find people who are honest and will listen to you and comply, and you can harass for those reasons. And then the people at the very, very top who have so much money can get around all of the statutes with their legal gymnastics, and then all the people on the bottom end, the poor, just ignore it. They just ignore it, you know. If you get a a ticket, it used to be a joke that the the highway patrol would say, we're going to have to issue strong tickets to stop this madness on, and it is mad on the California freeway. So then you, right. you know, I was late for an appointment. I went down a hill. I got a, I got a ticket. It was like 450 bucks. And then all of a sudden I noticed that I was driving normally compared to most people. They get ticket. And then every once in a while, Jerry Brown would announce, okay, hundred million dollars in tickets haven't been collected. We're going to give you exemption if you fit this impoverished uh, income level. So, yeah. And that's that's why yeah. people in the middle class get so angry, because they feel that they lack the romance of the poor that the wealthy extends to them and they lack the resources of the wealthy. And yeah. so they have nothing going for them. Well, it's tough to look in a mirror and see a sucker looking back at you, you know, and don't you feel like we're the sucker class almost? I, I uh, think they are. I think that's why. Yeah. Somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand Californians have left, and they're welcome yeah. to leave. I mean, Gavin Newsom is delighted that they're leaving, but they took seventeen billion dollars with them. Yeah. And we've got a twenty-five billion dollar shortfall. It's uh, twenty-five billion dollars uh, shortfall, but seventeen billion dollars in income seems to have vanished. Right, and if they keep it up in California, and I think they are going to keep it up, this is going to, it is a medieval state now, but it's going to be a state of the poor 
and a small enclave of very, very wealthy people on the coast. And that's about it. There's not going to be a middle class of any size. Well, yeah. Victor, that's um, we've got ended on that because we're we are somewhat over and we got a little yeah. business yeah. to attend to here. Yes. So, uh, but we thank our listeners uh, and couple couple of notes to to um, mention. One, you know, thanks to the folks who who listen on. Um, well, no matter what platform you listen on, thank you. But especially if you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and you leave a rating, uh, zero to five stars. Pra- again, practically everyone is five stars. We thank you very much. Uh, means you, you're in, you're enjoying or learning from uh, the wisdom Victor shares uh, f- at least four times. Although I know you did a couple extra podcasts this week, some interviews. I did, so, I did one so with you- Bruce Thornton, the author, about his new book on c- civilian uh, military tensions called Cage Fight. And then I did one with uh, Ido Netanyahu, the the playwright, journalist, author, and brother of Bibi Netanyahu, who I've known for a while. So I, I think you both would. I think everybody would bo- enjoy both interviews. Yeah. So we. So uh, th- to those who leave also comments, thank you. There's one that was very. I'm just going to mention uh, Maybell Ann. She wrote something very nice about me. I'm not going to read it on the air, but uh, I don't know who you are, Maybell Ann. But well, there's a big kiss to you. You're very kind. Uh, someone who uh, blue eyed 1972 left this very short. Um, comment titled new listener i am new to your podcast and i am hooked my new favorite phrase thanks uh, to vdh is now quote sanctimonious self-righteous incompetent uh i don't know who you were describing that victor it could be any number it could be pete Buttigieg. It could be joe biden it could be any number of people so those are folks that leave uh the uh, comments on on uh, apple podcast we read them all thank you and we also read the comments on that uh, mem- on uh, that folks who uh, uh, visit victorhanson.com leave. I don't know that you have to be a subscriber to leave a comment, but here's one. And, and it applies to the um, meritocracy piece that you um, wrote about the airlines. That's your most recent syndicated column. And I, I, it's a little bit here, but I think it's worth reading. Mary Lou Arkfeld wrote this uh, the other day. She writes, thank you um, so much for your Teachings, podcasts, articles, Victor, my 50-year-old son recently had heart surgery in Plano, Texas. At age 12, he received a mechanical aortic heart valve due to congenital defect and is pacer-dependent. He has exercised regularly, maintained a healthy weight, looks incredibly healthy. In January, he underwent aneurysm, aneurysm repair, three valves replaced, and a new pacer. None of this was a self-induced problem. Your thoughts on who will care for us in 20 years is a very real problem for some. Thank God his team was spectacularly intelligent and caring. We cannot lower the standards for medical schools and expect excellent health care to continue. Right on the amen, Mary Lou Arkfeld, uh, real life uh, uh, ex- ex- recounting of, of why meritocracy uh, matters and why its disappearance will also matter terribly. So thank you, Mary Lou, and everyone else who leaves comments. Victor, thank you uh, for the uh, wonderful thoughts you shared today. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Thank you. Thank you for all for listening once again. 